This was unique. He doesn't normally refer to himself alongside of someone like this. There are times where he will mention someone else in a salutation, but not right next to him like this. Usually put some space between himself and who else he mentions. Not only that, but normally if he uses the term bond slave of Christ Jesus, he uses it in regards to himself in a salutation. He does this in Romans and in Titus. But here he uses it in reference to both himself and to Timothy to prepare us for what is to come in the rest of this letter. But then he took us on to this next statement that we are saints in Christ. And he helps us to understand what is our spiritual identity, who we are in Christ, and the reality of what God has accomplished for us. And I want to go back and pick some of these thoughts up again this morning as we move forward into the rest of verse 1 and into verse 2. But we saw that this was a comprehensive consecration. He makes this reference to all the saints who are in Philippi. And he is going to carry this thought of all, 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 all the way down through this particular section of the letter and then through the rest of the letter. Twice he does this in verse 7, but he wants us to understand that he is calling us towards unity. And he will pick this thought up again in chapter 1, verse 27 and following. If you notice with me as he talks about this oneness or unity, verse 27 he says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are abiding firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So throughout this letter, he is going to appeal to the issue of the fact that we are to be unified. He carries this thought again into chapter 2 as he desires for them and for us to live in a particular way. Notice in chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Having this oneness in our purpose and understanding, remaining in the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. How do we accomplish this? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So Paul is striking a note here at the very beginning of this letter that he's going to carry throughout the rest of the letter that this is an all-inclusive Statement. Now, this is important for us to understand because if he is being all-inclusive like this and he is being comprehensive and he is referring to every single believer, then why does he mention the overseers and deacons separate from the rest of them? Or does he mention them separate from the rest of them? Why does he single them out? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves and these are things that Paul wants us to wrestle with because it's all a part of the purpose of why he writes this letter. He helps us to understand our identity in Christ and he begins with the fact that we are saints in Christ Jesus, that we have been set apart, we are separate. And this is a great term for us to understand because not only was this used in reference to the nation of Israel, but now as the new people of God, the church, we are also separate. We are also set apart from the rest of the world. We are hagios, he says, we are holy ones. This is our identity in Christ. We are people who have been set apart and consecrated to God's surface. Service just as much as the priests were in the Old Testament, that is who we are now. And it's interesting because he picks a term, Paul does, there are four different words in Greek that he could have chosen. He picks this one because it covers so many things. First, it covers our standing and our relationship with God, that we are consecrated, that we are set apart. But it also then takes on the element of morality, how we're supposed to live our lives. As God said to the nation of Israel, be holy for I am holy. In other words, if you're going to have a relationship with me as a holy God, then there is a certain way that you are supposed to live. 
So the extended thought then is that as we are consecrated to God, who is absolutely perfect in his morality, that he is absolutely holy, he is holy other and transcendent, then if we're going to have a relationship with him, then we must also live holy lives. That is the result of this being consecrated. In other words, we're not of the world anymore. We've been set apart and we have been made uncommon. We are unique in what God is doing in our life. And these are the truths that define us and these are the truths that we're supposed to live in light of. And Paul wants us to understand what is our character in light of our relationship to Christ. But he's also going to help us to understand the unsung hero, the Holy Spirit. We are consecrated by the Spirit of God. This is a spiritual work that has taken place in us. In other words, this isn't something that we do ourselves. We don't make ourselves saints. We can't perform miracles. We can't do anything that would put us in this standing. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves consecrated unto God. This is a work that God has done in us. And because of that work, then we can live holy lives. In other words, before activity, there must be identity. Because of who we are, then we will behave in a certain way. And Paul is going to help us to understand that the Holy Spirit operates through all of this. He is behind the scenes in this letter and we will see him pop up over and over again. But we have been set apart and consecrated by the Spirit of God. We are the ones as we are converted to regeneration. Our souls are bound together with Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1 verse 19 he's going to talk about the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 verse 1 he's going to appeal to the fellowship of the Spirit. Notice with me as he appeals to the issue of oneness and unity. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, that which the Spirit produces, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete. In other words, if you have experienced these things and you have as a believer, this is the motivation for why we are supposed to live the way that he wants us to live in verses 3 and following. In other words, in light of the work that, that God has done in us and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the fellowship that we have in the Spirit, we can live in oneness. He's going to help us to understand in chapter 3 that we are the true circumcision. We don't need that physical, external right done upon us. We have a spiritual circumcision and therefore we worship in the Spirit. There is a new dimension to our relationship with God in light of the working of the Holy Spirit. And then he ends this letter in chapter 4, verse 23, with this declaration of grace be unto your spirit and acted upon by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is going to highlight for us as we walk through Philippians, the Spirit is at work behind the scenes. He isn't always recognized, but we need to acknowledge the fact that he is there and always at work. And we need to understand, as Paul will help us to understand, that he is not an it. Times I hear believers when they talk about the Holy Spirit and they say it as though somehow he is an impersonal force that is somehow operating in our life. No, he is a he. <laughs> he is the second person of the Trinity, right? Or third person of the Trinity. He is a he. He is a personal being who has a relationship with us and we have a relationship with him. Thus we can grieve him when we do things that are not unifying in our life in the midst of the body of Christ. We grieve Him and we quench Him when we don't allow people to use their spiritual gifts. I wrestle with this in my own life. I, I don't like receiving. I was talking about this with Jerry. I don't like receiving gifts from people. 
have a hard time accepting things from folks. Not that I don't think that they should give and meet the needs, but do that for other people. I just have a hard time accepting that. But then I realize that if I don't let them do that and I keep them from doing that, then I'm hindering the grace of God operative in their life. And I am actually quenching the Holy Spirit because I'm not allowing Him to lead and guide in their life. And therefore, I need to receive the gifts that come from others. I'm a work in progress. I'm still working on that one, but I'm better than I used to be. But He's going to help us to understand that we have this relationship with Him. And it is... Also conditioned in Christ, he says, that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He will argue this in chapter 3, that it is not by our own doing, nor is it by the law, but it's by virtue of our union with Christ. We have been incorporated into Him, into His death and into His resurrection. Therefore, we are partakers of that resurrection life, and it is in union with Christ as the crucified, risen, glorified Messiah that we have a corporate solidarity as saints. It is in Christ we are who we are. And it is in Christ that we are bound together. And this is what is hard for me at times when I look at the church because so often we have a tendency to focus on the things that divide us than the things that unite us. We have a hard time recognizing the initial work of God in our life and how He made us to be in His Son through His Spirit. And we quibble over things that oftentimes are peripherals or things that we don't fully understand or things that we cannot answer, but we like to think that we can answer. So one of the things that I enjoyed about being on the mission field is that when on the mission field, we found that we were having fellowship with others of different denominations over in the States. This would not be so because there's so many barriers that are put up that we could not find that commonality that we would have worshipped together. But over there, we all knew that we were there for a common cause, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing souls saved. And we understood that there were things that were the faith, and these were things that we die on and fight for. And the other things we'll work through together. And we won't fight over who is right, but we will seek to get it right. There's a huge difference between the two of those things. There are things that we need to fight and contend for. There are things that we need to be passionate about. Paul in Galatians, as he deals with the issue of the gospel and salvation through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, right? As he argues these points, he makes a statement that he wishes those who were preaching an external circumcision, that they would mutilate themselves, that they would emasculate themselves. And we might look at that and say, that isn't very kind speech, but just keep in mind, this is after Christ already came. This is not before Christ, this is after Christ. And I remind you that Christ is also the one who overturned the tables and drove out the money changers with a whip from the temple because they were defiling the house of God. So there are times for us to become passionate about certain truths in Scripture and things that we must fight for and hills we must die on. But we need to know what those things are. And Paul's going to help us to understand these things as we go through Philippians together. He helps us to grasp the fact as he moves from chapter 1 into chapter 2 that Christ is indeed, he is a single self who lived in time and space. He is the historical Jesus, if you will. And it's interesting that in chapter 2, as he talks about the fact that every knee will bow, it is before him he declares to be Jesus. And that is the one rare time that Paul uses that name by itself. Because he wants us to understand that that historical Jesus is the one who is going to be acknowledged as Lord. By everyone. 
but he is more than just merely historical human being. Christ is personal and he is transcending. He is the everywhere present deity in whom we live, move, and have our being. He is the reality of our life. It is in Christ that we have everything. He is, if you will, the air that we are to breathe. Wherever we go, we must understand that we walk and live in Him and it needs to be reflected in the life that we live and the things that we say and the thoughts that we have. For Paul, he understands that this is an essential truth to being a believer. Essentially, being a believer means being in Christ, living in the sphere of Christ, having Him be the environment of our life, that which conditions everything about our life, that He is the one who sets the parameters for our life. So often we go out into the world and others set the parameters for us. We go into the workplace and we're surrounded by unbelievers and so we live in light of their parameters. Don't ask, don't tell. You don't ask me, I won't tell you I'm saved. And I won't tell you about Jesus Christ. But Paul says as a believer we are always to be living in the environment of Christ wherever we go. Man doesn't condition this, only Christ conditions this. He sets the boundaries. He tells me where I can go and I cannot go. He is for me the air that I breathe from the moment I get up in the morning to the time that I go to bed at night and draw my last for the day as I fall off to sleep. This is what Paul wants us to understand. Everything about us as a people of God is in Christ. He is our life. He is our strength. He is our sufficiency. He is our all in all. Therefore, we need to understand that He is our spiritual environment and all the way through this letter, Paul is going to highlight this. He likes these phrases, in Christ or in Christ Jesus. Notice with me in chapter 4, after he talks about the great fact that all the knees of the earth are going to bow before Christ Jesus, that mention of his lordship then carries him through the rest of this letter, and he's going to keep appealing to the lordship of Christ. Notice with me in chapter 4, as he appeals to the sovereignty of God. In chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is going to be the refrain that comes over and over again in chapter 4. Notice chapter 4, verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. In light of the Sovereign One. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in who? In the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, not just to the believers, not just to the family of faith, but to all men. Why? For the Lord is near. Over and over and over, he is going to appeal to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. These phrases mean so much to the Apostle Paul and the one that we know so well in our lives, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things, not through Him, but in Him who strengthens me. He is the environment in which we live. He is the one from whom I draw all my strength. He is the one from whom I draw my ability to live this life. So Paul wants us to understand these certain truths. And you'll notice as we walk through this letter, chapter 1, verse 26, notice with me the Philippians' confidence is resulting from a life in Christ Jesus, and this will abound. Chapter 3, verse 3, Christians glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. It's only upon the merits of Christ that we can stand before God the Father. Those merits that He accomplished and imputed to us, can we have full access to God the Father? Can we come before His throne of grace rather than His throne of judgment? 
This is how God sees us when he looks down into our life. He sees us in Christ. Because apart from him, there is no hope. Outside of him, there is no other relationship that is as transforming and regenerating and life-giving as this relationship. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 19, Paul says, The grace of God will guard the Philippians' hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And their every need will be met according to God's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a key thought for Paul all the way through this letter, through every letter. That is an interesting thought to me. I started looking through all the writings of the Apostle Paul. You know that he uses this phrase in Christ or a variant of it 164 times in his letters. 164. This blows my mind why theological works are not dealing with this particular doctrine. Why is this left out of systematics? Why is this not touched upon? Obviously, this is a crucial doctrine for the Apostle Paul. Thus, it must be a crucial doctrine for us, our relationship to Christ. It is everything. Notice in chapter 3, verse 14 of Philippians, the promised prize of God's heavenward call is in Christ Jesus. The Philippians were to adopt the same attitude toward one another as was found in Christ Jesus. Everything about our life is marked by Him. He is the condition of our life. And it is a glorious, glorious reality for us. We need to understand these truths, that this union is organic. You can't manufacture this. It's only accomplished by God. This isn't simply because we ascribe to certain creeds together or that we sign certain doctrinal statements. This is going well beyond that. This is a spiritual union. This is an unfathomable union that Paul is going to talk about and develop for us. And in Christ, there is no more intimate statement, acceptance, or security can be found in anything else other than in this. Go to Colossians chapter 3. As he talks about the fact that Christ is our life in verses 3 and 4. And he says that he is our life and our life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't be more secure than that. Fort Knox can't beat that. But this is the reality of our relationship with God. Their spatial location. And this is important because Paul makes an issue of this. He does this by how he words it. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. In other words, he understands we don't live life in a vacuum. We're out there in the world, but we're not of the world. We need to make an impact where we are. And Paul wants them to understand this. So this is how he actually words it in the Greek, and I'll bring it over to English for you. To all the saints, to those in Philippi. In other words, he is highlighting the fact that, yes, you are saints in Christ Jesus, but you have a place in which you're supposed to live out that reality in your life. And this was significant for the Philippian church because they were Roman citizens. This was something that was held in high ideal. Not only that, but they were also Roman miniature. And everything about this city was characterized by Rome. They used Latin. That was the official language. Even though they used Greek, Latin was the language that they used. And whatever Rome did, they did in miniature. Not only that, but Paul says, and we find later on that he is referred to as a Roman colony. And if you know the history of Philippi, it is a very unique history that this city had. So everything about this city was unique, but Paul wanted them to understand something. That they were supposed to live this radically different life in time, in space, in their neighborhoods, around their neighbors, and when they're working. 
What's also interesting is that you will find that Paul actually mentions them by name as the Philippians. He doesn't normally do this. Everything he does is he's going to remind them that their allegiance is to be God, to God. You need to understand that most of their neighbors, as unbelievers, they're bowing the knee to Lord Caesar. They're bowing the knee to Herod or to Nero. This is who their deity is, and they worshipped the emperor. And so this is what their neighbors were living like, and this is what drove them. And Paul wanted them to understand, that's not where your allegiance lies. This is the frustration I have with politics today, because it has saturated everything. Everything is political. You can't even watch sports without politics. Everything is political. And it's confused the conversation. And if we're not careful as the church, it's going to confuse our conversation. It's not an issue between right and left. It's an issue between right and wrong. Holiness, right? Purity. As opposed to foolishness and wickedness and sinfulness. These are the things that we stand for. These are the things that we contend for. This is how we're supposed to be known. Not by my political stance, but by my stance in Christ. That's how we make an impact. That's how we change the world. It's by this personal transformation of individual lives. If you want to grab the pitchforks and storm the castle, be my guest. But what's really going to change this world? is seeing people saved, seeing them standing in Christ. The racism, the injustice, all of it, the lawlessness. How do we succumb all of this? How do we fight against this? Christ is the great unifying reality in our lives. He is the one who brings all of us together and we're all eclectic. We all have our own baggage and different backgrounds and all of that. And yet at the same time, we come together and we are one in Christ by the presence of the Spirit in our life. All of that stuff is set aside. doesn't matter what scale you are on economically. You can be rich, you can be poor, but in Christ, we're all on the same level. We all come to the foot of the cross. We all need salvation. We all need a Savior. Even Mary herself understood that God is her Savior. It's the beautiful reality of it all. In Christ, I don't see the color of your skin. In Christ, our nationality doesn't matter. I'm proud about the clan that I'm a part of, Clan McDougal, but at the same time, none of that matters in Christ. It's all a part of this world, not the world that is yet to come. And Paul wants us to understand how important this relationship is. This morning we're going to end with this and talk about the issue of his reference to overseers and deacons. It's interesting because this is the third identifying statement that he makes in the first couple verses. The uniqueness of this phrase, it's interesting because he mentions the overseers and deacons together here. He doesn't do this anywhere else in his writings except for you have 1 Timothy chapter 3 where he'll talk about qualifications of elders and the qualifications of deacons. That is the only time that he mentions them alongside of each other, there and here. But here it's very unique how he does this. We need to know that overseer is also used in reference. There is another word in Greek, presbyteros, which means elder. And they have a significance, each one of these terms. So outside of this letter in the pastoral epistles, we don't have overseers or deacons mentioned in Paul's writings. The meaning of this. This is important for us to understand. I, I think that we, we don't, 
have a proper understanding of the church and body life and the roles that people have in the body of Christ. Oftentimes we have a tendency to pull the world over and bring it into the church. And this is how we sort of color how we see things. And especially when we talk about leadership, this is how we see leadership. What leadership looks like in the church is not what it looks like in the world. Christ told the disciples, right? Don't do as the Gentiles do as lording it over them. He showed them how to be a leader. But we have leaders in the church who don't understand what church leadership ought to look like. They look at the world, and this is how we appoint elders and deacons or overseers. This is how we, we appoint them in these quote-unquote positions in the church. We look at them in their secular realm. We say, okay, well, they're good at their business. They're, they own their own business, or they are a president of this, or they're the fire chief over here, or they're this over there and this over here. And we look at all that and say, okay, they're a natural leader. Let's bring them in and make them leaders in the church. But that's not what makes you a leader in the church of God. Those things don't matter ultimately in the church of God. So we need to understand what he is talking about when he makes reference to these leaders within the church because that is exactly who he's talking to. The first word he uses is overseers and it's used parallel with presbyteros, elders or presbyters. You'll see it translated as sometimes. They're one and the same person. But each of those terms reveals something about this ministry. The first word, the word that Paul uses here, overseers, the word is episkopos. It's from two words, epi, upon, and skopos, which is to look intently. So it is to look upon. So what do they do? They watch over us. They provide care and protection. In other words, they watch over the flock to make sure that heresy isn't being spread amongst the flock of God, amongst the people of God. They provide a watchful care over us. In classical and also in, in the Septuagint Greek, the term meant overseer. And although this particular word in Greek is used of various different offices used socially and also in the context of the church, oversight is always the common thought. And it comes from skapos, which means to be a watcher. And that is what an elder is. That is what an overseer is. They are a watcher. They watch over you. Thus, the ministry of oversight is protective care. And it's at the heart of this activity. And I'll just tell you, this isn't about a position to be filled. It's about a ministry to be fulfilled. And that's the first thing we need to understand. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy not to lay hands on a man very quickly. And this was dealing with elders or overseers in the church. Why does he tell them to do this? Not to lay his hand on them quickly. In other words, don't affirm their life right away. He says, wait and watch their life. Why? Because there may be bad fruit that comes from their life. In other words, they might present themselves in a certain way when you gather together as a church, but in the rest of their life, they're not who they are when they're at church, right? So he says, watch their life. Their fruit will either go before them or follow after them. But one way or another, you're going to see the quality of this man's life. If it is a qualified life, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you see all these characteristics being lived out in his life, then you put your hand on him and affirm him as an elder, as an overseer. If they don't, then you do not. In other words, you don't make someone an overseer, an elder. You affirm the fact that they are already that. In other words, by 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications. They must be this, 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 this. And the first one is his relationship to his wife. But he starts off and he's going to talk about family dynamic all the way through this. But he lays out the qualifications. This is who he's supposed to be. Temperate, so on. 
If you look at this man and you see these things, then affirm that life. Why? Because he is who he says he is. Thus, as my father says, an elder isn't always an elder. An elder is an elder is an elder is an elder. He doesn't become one. He is one. And we just lay our hands on them and affirm that. If they're not, then we don't. Same thing with deacons. We'll look for the quality of their life. Their life is very similar. If you look at the characteristics of overseers and deacons, the characteristics are often alike, except for the one variant is that stands out is the fact that an elder, an overseer, is to be apt to teach. In other words, he must be able to communicate and preach the Word of God. If he can't do that, then that's not an elder. <laughs> he might be a deacon, but he's not an elder. But here's the thing about deacons. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, they're also supposed to hold to the fir firmly, if you will, to the mystery of the faith. In other words, they must know their doctrine. They may not teach it, right, as the elders ought to and the overseers ought to, but they still need to know it, and they need to hold fast to it. If they don't, then you don't affirm them. You don't put your hands on them and affirm them as such, because they're not that. So Paul wants us to understand these things. The New Testament then, the same ministerial position this role that you have in the church, overseer and elder, are exactly the same. So the overseer then, this term, episkopos, it refers to the nature of the work. What is it they do? They watch over the flock of God. This is why I affirm Robert as an elder in this body, as an overseer. He's always asking questions. And he's asking good questions. And he always wants theology refined for him as we look at the context. This is a man I want watching over the flock. He's going to make sure that we don't be right, but get it right, that we're walking together. The elder then, this term presbyteros, referring to the same person, but from a different aspect, this refers to the maturity that's necessary. There are men who serve in positions in the church who fulfill these ministries. They ought not to be there because they are not mature in the faith. They are immature. This is unfortunate because you have men who are preaching the word of God, who are pastoring, shepherding the flock of God, who ought not to be doing it by themselves, who need some gray hair alongside of them. I've had the benefit of having my father alongside of me for a long time. But there are men out there who are serving the body of Christ who are immature and should not be doing it alone. They don't understand what it means to be a shepherd yet. So deacons, diakonos, this is the other term that Paul uses, oftentimes translated servant or minister. He loves this word, so he will use it even in reference to just Christian ministry overall. But he loves this particular expression because it carries the idea of servanthood, and that is what a deacon is. He serves. Now some think that Acts 6, those that were picked in Acts 6, that those were the original deacons. And so they oftentimes will look to Acts 6 to see what a deacon's work is to look like. But there's no reference to them being deacons there. So they may have been a foreshadowing of what a deacon is, but they're not specifically mentioned to be that. But I will tell you this, it's interesting that if you look at Acts 6, those men that were chosen to serve the widows, look at the spiritual qualifications that were looked for before they used these men to minister even to feeding the widows. In other words, they needed to be the, have the highest spiritual reality in their life before they could serve and even such a menial thing as serving food to widows. What does that tell us? If anyone is going to lead in the body of Christ, they must be spiritual men. They must have a life that is characterized by the things that God desires in them. You don't just put anyone in the position. 
I met with a brother and he was planting a church years ago and we were talking and he said, you know, I, I just affirmed two elders for the church. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, so how long have you known them? Oh, they've only been there a couple months. And I said, well, how do you know their life then? Have you watched it? Did you know them outside the context of the church? No, they just started coming. I said, well, why did you affirm them as elders then? He said, because we needed to have leadership and I couldn't do it alone. I said, but you don't just slap someone in position and say, here you go, if they don't measure up to God's standard for what they're supposed to be like. I said, you're destined for trouble. And growing up in the church, I've seen this happen time and time again. And watch my father go off to churches to help straighten them out and help them understand these aren't elders, these aren't deacons, these aren't people who are supposed to be leading in the church of God because they don't measure up to God's standard. I remember growing up in the church and you had trustees. That was an invention. There's no such terminology in the New Testament. But you had trustees and what they referred to them as smoking deacons. So you can handle the money, but you can't do the spiritual stuff. Understand this. Even serving tables, you must be spiritual. There is no moral slackness in anything when it comes to the household of God and serving as a leader in the family of God. And what he wants is family men, not businessmen. And a friend of mine came to me and he says, Steve, you got to read this book. It's a great book, man. I learned so much about ministry from this book. And I said, oh, great, awesome. I'm, I'm great. I want to hear it because, I, you know, what, what's it going to drive me to in the Word of God to study and see what I need to do and understand? And so he gives me this book and it was a completely secular book and it was all about business models. And I scratched my head and I looked at him and I said, I think Christ said something about this. That we're not supposed to do this? What was Christ's leadership? He took an apron of a slave, got down on his feet and watched his disciples' feet, even though all authority and power was given to him. That's what his idea of leadership looks like. Ours is totally different. The world is totally different. The significance of this phrase, and it's interesting how Paul words it, he says, together with or including the overseers and deacons. This preposition soon shows close, intimate fellowship. In other words, the preposition is to be taken inclusively, not exclusively. He's not setting them apart, completely apart from the whole. He is distinguishing them. They are a role and have a ministry in the church of God. And yet at the same time, they are a part of the whole. They are not above the whole and they are not outside of the whole. In other words, there is no such thing as a hierarchy in God's church. So I'm in theology class, and here's the question. Who rules God's church? Answer, God does. What did I hear? Congregational rule, elder rule, right? Episcopal, whatever you want to go down, right? That's not the answer. There's only one who rules God's church because it's His church. The rest of us are servants in that. Paul wants us to understand these are not, this isn't a hierarchy over under. And we say, well, how in the world did the Roman Catholic Church come about? A lot of history. A lot of wrong turns in the road. Cyprian was one of the issues. Augustine was another one in the kingdom of God. And his misunderstanding of certain things. Man-made religion, hierarchy. There are those who stay on the top and they rule everyone under them. This is our society, our government, the elite at the top. They tell the rest of us what to think, so they think. That's the world. It's not the church. We are out in front of. We are setting examples for. 
We are protecting and giving watchful care over. We are alongside of, but it is never over and under. And if I ever start to do that, I'm expecting the gray hair to come alongside of me and say, knock that off, young man. Because that's not how the church is meant to be. Thus, understanding these particular terms are important for us. And Paul understands that we cannot do these things on our own. We need God's grace and we need God's peace. And you'll notice with the statement that Paul makes with this grace and peace. Notice how he words this. He says, grace to you and peace. In other words, they're sequential. You cannot experience the peace of God if you have not experienced the grace of God. And Paul always words it this way. In other words, it's pointless to try and get someone to live like a Christian if they're not a Christian yet. As G. Campbell Morgan would say, first we must lead them to Christ. Then we can expect them to live like Christ. Paul understands that we need the grace of God in our life. And we need the peace of God if we are going to function together. And we will find that there is disunity in this body. It's starting to show its ugly head and Paul's going to squelch it fast. But may God help us as we seek to understand who we are in Christ and how we must live. We are saints and we are also servants. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for your goodness to us and for the time that we can spend in worship and, and adoring you and glorifying your name. Thank you for your word and the preservation of it, Father, for the truth that it contains. Help us to be faithful, Father. We so desire to walk in conformity with your word to be all that you have made us to be and desire for us to be in Christ through your spirit. To serve in ways that you would have us serve, Father, may we never be envious of one another. May we understand that we're all uniquely gifted. We each have unique roles within the body of Christ, within this holy temple within which your spirit resides. We're all living stones that make it up. but we realize that it is all about you. So we seek to bring you glory today. And we seek to glorify you throughout this week ahead of us, Father, in everything that we say, do, and think. May we worship you with our lives. May we live in the atmosphere and sphere of Christ in everything. May his fragrant aroma go forth from our life as we interact with the world. May we be a procession of life entering into the procession of death. May we declare the truth of Christ and salvation in him. May we be bold to step through the open doors that you provide for us, depending upon your spirit to give us the words to speak in the moment. May we never be afraid to stand for the truth. May we never be cowards. May we be fearless in Christ. May we be bold in your spirit. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ our Savior.